following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I wanted to introduce to you our guest speaker today. He's my friend from Blacksburg, Virginia, Pastor Don Shiver. Um, would you come up, Don, uh, now? Because I want to—I don't want to be too long-winded, and if you're standing here next to me, that will probably help me rein it in. Um, but I do want to say a few things about Don. Uh, Don is a, a church planter and pastor in Blacksburg, Virginia, a college town, pastoring with a unique. Um, model and starting a church with a very unique model that uh, is different from how we went about things, but I'm just so uh, excited to hear how it's been going, and it sounds like um, the kind of place that a lot of us would, would love to be, and um, Don has told me that, that you know, he kind of gets this kindred spirits thing between our churches as well, which is neat, because we also had, I think, that sort of personal experience when we met this past winter at uh, the Covenant Pastors Gathering in Denver. Um, Don is one of those guys who you meet and you're just like, oh man, I think, oh, I think we could be friends, we could be buds. And that's sort of how it has gone, and I'm gra- very grateful for that. Because um, you don't, <laughs> you don't want to be thinking that you have a friendship and the other person's like, eh. Um, that would be really embarrassing. So, um, but the one thing that I want to tell you about Don, and I told you this last week, is that Don has what I have described as an infectious love for scripture. It's contagious. And um, you might think that when two pastors get together, they s- sit out on the porch and uh, drink lemonade and talk about the Bible constantly, like every time. That is not what happens. A lot of times we want to talk about other things. But when Don and I get together, we um, talk about the Bible a lot. And it's never dry or dull or boring. And so when I asked him if he would come speak to the people of Artisan Church, it was easy for me to say, could you talk about the Bible? <laughs> so I gave him this ridiculous title, um, What is the Bible? Um, <laughs> and uh, so it's going to be s- probably several hours here. Uh, no, not just, just kidding. Donnie, you take as much time as you need, uh, as long as it's less than 35 minutes, I guess. That'd be fun. <laughs> uh, but I promise that you'll be uh, engaged and touched and blessed by uh, Don's message here and his teaching this morning. So um, can you say thank you to Don for coming all the way from Blacksburg to be here with us today? Thanks. Well, good morning. Um, It's really great to be with you guys. Uh, As Scott was saying, our church plant is very different. Uh, There is uh, like... 20 of us. Uh, We have a a concept that we do discipleship first, church second. And so I ask everyone uh, that's part of our community to enter into a very intentional and deep discipleship process uh, with myself or one of the other people who have been through that process. So for our church, our totality of our youth ministry is my 12-year-old son. So this is really awesome to be around so many uh, kids. Uh, The totality of our marriage program is my wife and I as well. Uh, and so uh, we have a lot of grad students from Virginia Tech uh, that attend our church. So when Scott and I talked and he asked me uh, to teach and to think about uh, speaking to you guys about what is the Bible, uh, of course that sent me, I was excited, I was really pumped about it, and then I realized how am I going to say everything I want to say, as Scott said, in less than 30 minutes. So I'm going to do my best, and I'm going to uh, just share some ideas and thoughts with you guys. 
I want to begin first with letting you know what my church experience was growing up. So I'm a pastor's kid, so that already means I'm broken in many ways, right? Uh, And so in my church, if you inhaled too deeply or scooted around on the chair too much, slow down, we're not holy rollers. That's what my church was. It was like frozen chosen, all right? Um, In fact, this morning, thank you, Abel, you gave me a great piece this morning. So it jogged a memory for me. Thank you. So uh, my dad one time was up front preaching and I was in the back pew with my buddy and we were playing cards. Sound familiar, Abel? Uh, And my dad, I asked him if he was playing poker because that's what I was playing in the back pew with my buddy. And my dad stops the church service and says, Don, if you and Brian are done playing, we'll continue the service. And I was like, can I just finish this hand? (laughs) Um, And so began my love of the church and gambling. (laughs) Um, But in that setting of that church, there was a real sense that when it came to the Bible, almost that the Bible was this fragile thing. It couldn't be questioned. You had to take it for exactly what it said. Depending on the translation, that's what mattered in many cases. Uh, And ultimately, what that led to people understanding is that whoever stood in the front had all the answers and the authority for interpreting the text. This was very disheartening to me. I had lots of questions. I had lots of things I wanted to understand and to know. And so, uh, as I moved out of my house and walked away from the church, I began to question everything, which led me to an unbelievably deep and beautiful relationship with Jesus and with my faith uh, that I don't regret for a moment. So what I want to do is I want to talk about what does it look like when we move from the Bible being a book filled with answers to a book filled with better questions, a book that's filled with this idea that it can expand and be something so beautiful and meaningful that our wonder just continues to grow, that we get to play in the text Right? How many of you have ever thought about playing in the Bible, that that is even something that you could do? Uh, So for me, I was pastoring, my first pastor's gig was at a mega church. Uh, It was very quickly understood now that, as you know, I just said we have a 20-person church. I did not fit in that model. Uh, I started teaching Greek to college students in my dining room at 7 a.m., and they were like, I think we should do movie nights on Friday nights and not do Greek. Uh, pretty quickly, I was aware, it became obvious to me that it wasn't a good fit to me. But in the midst of my time there, one of the things I did is I got engaged by a writer named Abraham Heschel. And he is a rabbi. Um, and he had a sense and a wonder of scripture. In fact, an anthology of his writings and ideas called So I Asked for Wonder. Uh, which is a great book, and I I highly recommend it. But but I was reading him and listening to his heart, and the way that he talked about Scripture, it was as if it sang to him. And I was like, I've wanted for so long for the text to just sing to me. Instead, my understanding of the text, my perspective of the text was that it was archaic, it was boring, it was out of date. Uh, I realize I just said like the same thing three times. But... But all these things, I had these, this picture of the text, 
And so it was easier, actually, for me to just go ahead and let there be an answer person at the front of the room because the Bible didn't really impact my life enough for me to care. But when I started asking questions, the text opened up to me. Uh, One of the things that became very clear when I began wrestling with Scripture was that I was taught to read the Bible from a very Western perspective. That makes sense. We're Western for the most part, right? And so we had this Western perspective that I was taught to read the text, not understanding that the Bible was written from an Eastern perspective. Okay, so I'm going to way oversimplify and not bother with any nuance whatsoever right now and try not to catch my Bible on fire. Um, That would be the antithesis of what I'm trying to communicate. Um, Anybody have a sense of, like, what would you say is the major difference? Oh, this is the other thing at my church. Like, I ask questions the whole time, uh, and so I apologize. And when I ask, I'm not being rhetorical. I really am asking you. Uh, What would you say is one of the biggest differences between Eastern thought and Western thought? Any ideas that would affect how you read the Bible? Right to left? Okay, fair enough. You know, the irony is many of us do read our Bible from right to left. We start with Revelation and figure out where we're going and then head the other direction. Uh, but what else? What is, what is just a very basic idea within Eastern and Western thought? Yeah. Uh, no, usually it's not. It's pretty obvious. We're like this big. Oh, that's excellent. But listen, stop stomping on my sermon. I'm going to do that later. <laughs> That's great. We are going to talk about that. That's perfect. Thank you. Yes. Fantastic. Thank you. And I didn't even have to pay you for that. Okay. So within Western thought, we tend to be... So let me give you maybe some imagery that might help. First of all, that was very Eastern for me to say I wanted to give you some imagery that might help. Um, but if, if you want to study a frog and you're thinking coming from an Eastern perspective, particularly when I speak about Judaism, when I speak about Eastern thought, I'm really talking about ancient because I can't speak about modern contemporary because that's not my field. So just understand that and give me grace in that. But in ancient Eastern thought, if you wanted to study a frog, you would go out and sit next to a pond and you'd watch the frog and how it behaves in its habitat. You'd see what it eats for lunch. You would see how it it woos the other frogs. Right? You would see the, how it lives, you'd see the, the atmosphere and the space that it's in. Now, think back to 8th grade biology in a Western mindset. How do you study a frog? <laughs> Cut it open, stick it to a board. Right? And guess what? You can figure out how much, what it had for lunch right? by opening up its stomach. And you can see what it's had for lunch. You might even find some other similarities. And what happens is the Western way of thinking about things is very different. And there's things that you just couldn't possibly know by dissecting a frog that Eastern thinking or sitting next to the pond would get you. Now, same way, the other side goes, I would know how many chambers are in a frog's heart from a Western perspective, but not from an Eastern perspective. So what I was raised to think, and maybe most of you, and maybe you guys haven't had this experience, I was raised to read the Bible from a very Western perspective. I got out my surgery... Uh, kit, right? And I dissected the text. And I parsed verbs and words and I did all this stuff and I missed the imagery. 
because imagery wasn't important. So let me give you a piece of imagery and let, let's see what we can do. Let's do a, uh, a thought experiment or let's play with the text for a moment. You guys remember the scene in Matthew where Jesus is baptized? I hope you all say yes, that you remember this scene. Okay, so the scene where Jesus is baptized, what happens when he uh, is done being baptized? What's the, what's the imagery? Right, the heavens are torn open, right? And then the Spirit of God descends like a dove upon Jesus. Now, as a Westerner, we read that and think, that's interesting, shape-shifting spirit, all right? Right? But think about this. Where else in the Bible have you ever seen a spirit over water, a dove over water? What are some of the examples you can think of? Noah. Noah's Ark. Yep. What else? Creation. What else? You guys nailed the two really good ones, right? There's some other ones that you kind of go, like if I said them to you, you'd be like, "Uh, you might be stretching it, but I'm not. All right, what's that? Absolutely, the parting of the sea, because the Spirit of God blew up, and the water, not he blow up. Um, and so the Spirit of God blows, and the water separates, right? So let's think about those, those handful of pictures. You have Jesus in the baptism with the dove descending, right? You have the, the Spirit of God hovering over tohu vavohu, right? The, the formless and void of before creation. You have the, the dove over the water in the flood narrative. You have the picture of the Red Sea parting. What do all of those stories have in common? I'll give you a hint. When you're a rabbi, what you do is you go to first usage of an idea, and that explains it forward. So what do all those things have in common? Creation? Yes, who said that? creation. Think about it. So in Genesis, we see the creation of all things. In Noah, we see the baptism of the earth and a new earth coming out of that. We see it as Israel crosses the Red Sea and a new people, right? It's the first time that we hear Israel declare God to be king is in that moment, right? And then you have Jesus, and as we all here share in our faith and our belief, we have a new creation that we see in this moment of, of the baptism of Jesus. You guys see how that, that's beautiful and that intertwines? So the first listener, being an Easterner, hearing this picture being spoken to them, is thinking, I'm being told that there's a creation about to happen. There's something breaking forth right now, something is going to change, right? How beautiful and rich is that? Where does Jesus end up next, right? Where does he go next? Baptism and then into the what? Wilderness, all right? And how long is he there? 40 days. And, and what does he run into in this wilderness for 40 days? What's that? The Satan, the epitome of evil, right? And he has this interaction with the epitome of evil in wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights in this tempting of him. So, how many of you immediately, because we're talking about imagery, went to the Exodus story? That's a good one. 
How many of you went to David and Goliath? Listen to this. So Goliath goes out, and it says, into the wilderness. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he taunted Israel. And when they describe Goliath, they say he's over six cubits tall. What does six represent? Evil. His, his spearhead weighed over 600 shekels. Thank you, English version, for giving us the, the, the modern weights so we miss all this, right? His, his spearhead weighs over 600 shekels. His armor was even made out of what? Anyone remember? Scales, right? Here it is. The author is drawing us this picture and saying the epitome of evil is standing and tempting Israel for 40 days and 40 nights. And here comes David, right? And David, what does he do? He picks up five stones. And where does he hit Goliath with the five stones? In the forehead. And according to Deuteronomy 6.4, what are we supposed to have on our forehead and on our right hand? The very word of God. And for Israel, when you say five, you mean Torah. How does Jesus conquer Satan in the wilderness? What does he quote? But specifically what scripture? He quotes from Torah. And so Jesus has just been tied because of the genealogy to King David. In fact, the genealogy, if you get into it and you look at how it's set up, actually declares David, David, David. And so here, all of a sudden, we have Messiah who's going to begin his ministry in the exact same way as King David did. Isn't that powerful? It's amazing when we start to look at imagery. And then that really fixes things. So like the church I grew up in that I said was kind of frozen chosen, they also were very paranoid. And so like anything that looked like a barcode stuck on anyone's body was like, that's the end of the world, right? <laughs> Like, I think those people still love Kirk Cameron. Um, but anyhow, <laughs> but anyhow, so you look in the book of Revelation, and it says you will take the mark of the beast, and where will that mark be? Forehead and the back of your right hand. What is supposed to be on your forehead and the back of your right hand? The word of God. And so you shifted your authority. What was created on the sixth day? Man. And you've replaced God with man. And if you do that, you will find that you are no longer participating in this kingdom that has been offered. It's beautiful. The imagery is rich. And let me just tell you, back off being afraid of microchips. I don't think that that was in mind with the book of Revelation. So one of the other pieces that I think is important that we can engage the text intellectually. So one of the things that I felt was, was missing uh, in my teaching of Scripture or being taught Scripture was that I either had two, one of two choices. It was, became very binary. I could either read the Scripture and, and read it in a manner that spiritually fulfilled me, or I could be like one of those liberal ivory tower people and read it intellectually. And that's what was presented to me. And I would argue, let's lose all the adjectives, and I would argue that when we treat the text intelligently and we give it its authority 
spiritually, that it actually leads to transformation. I think the church over years has had to depend almost exclusively on behavior modification because we've lost the ability to engage the text so it's transformative. It's way easier to smack the puppy in the nose and tell it not to poop in the living room anymore, right? Sorry, I have a bad experience. Um, And after you smack the puppy on the nose enough times, the puppy goes outside and, and poops. Not because the puppy respects me and loves me and has had a deep change of character. Right? And I would argue that the church has too often, because of this fear of the text and this fear of questioning and this fear of engaging scriptures in an intelligent way, has reverted too often to that same behavior modification. Now, I don't know that Scott rolls up a newspaper often from the stage. I doubt that, right? If he does, duck, right? Um, But I, I would imagine that that is something that we all need to work through. And I think that if we begin to see the text uh, in its proper context and place in history, it starts to become transformative and exciting, and it begins to sing. So let me, let me ask you a couple questions about context. So you guys have been so good about knowing the text, which is awesome, that I haven't had to open my Bible. And this is fantastic. I love to talk about the Bible in a way... and and not have to open it because people know the text. This is awesome. So I'm grateful to you for this. So there's a scene in Luke that you'll probably remember uh, where where Jesus is approached by some Pharisees. First of all, Pharisees, Jesus was probably a Pharisee. Just keep that in mind. Paul says he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So if you're bad-mouthing Pharisees, stop it. Okay? So a Pharisee approaches Jesus and says... So, should we pay tribute to Caesar? You guys all familiar with this? So, what does Jesus ask? What's that? Someone have a coin. Good. Other answers were correct, just not in order. So, Jesus says, does someone have a coin? The irony is someone had a tribute coin on them, right? I mean, come on. Like, Jesus was standing there like, oh, really? You have one? That's funny. So, he asks them, what does he ask them? Oh, no, 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 no. You, answer, you gave me one of the questions he asks. He asks two questions. I'm going to give you a hint about scripture, okay? If at the end of a section it says, and they were amazed by his teaching, and you aren't, you're reading it wrong. <laughs> okay? Right? Because that's what it says at the end of this section. It says, and they were amazed at this teaching. And we read and go, I don't have to pay taxes. Sweet, right? So he asks two questions. What's the second question? He says, whose image and whose inscription? Excellent. Who said that? Good job. Thank you. And whose inscription? And they answer him with how many answers? And what do they say? Anybody know what the inscription on denarius says? There's a bunch of different ones, but they all go something like this. Caesar is Lord. Jesus looks at them and says, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Darn Skippy, that's his ugly mug. But you give to God what is God's. That is his title only. 
unbelievable teaching. They were like, ah, yeah. So I wasn't finished. I was pausing for effect. I I had a second answer coming up. It was going to be Caesar and God. (laughs) But instead, we miss that because we don't understand context, because we don't think, hey, I should probably go look on the internet. Google's fantastic, by the way. And see what a denarius has as its inscription. Some of the other inscriptions are Tiberius, son of God. Right? And Jesus is like, give to God what is God's. Um, And there's a very powerful picture. So we just recently had Pentecost Sunday. So let's look at context for Pentecost Sunday. Because what I just gave you was historical context. This would be biblical context. So what's celebrated... At the Feast of Pentecost. Anybody know? What's that? Okay, now, it's been co-opted for that, right? But what was it being, I mean, obviously a million Jews showed up in Jerusalem for a reason that day, not by the chance that the Spirit might show up, right? So why were they all in Jerusalem? We're, We're getting closer. It was, beca- it was affected by the harvest, but it had started to become also associated with what else? The giving of Torah on Mount Sinai. Now listen, if you want to hear something awesome, read Acts 2 again with this, right? Torah is given on Mount Sinai. What does Israel say to Moses? They're like, you go up because we're freaked out, right? Why are they freaked out? Because when God spoke, it sounded like thunder, You know what the rabbi said? Why it sounded like thunder? Because when God spoke at Mount Sinai, he spoke in every language at once. And so it sounded like thunder. And if you remember in the story of Pentecost, everyone heard the teaching in their own language. Also, when Torah was given, Moses comes down the mountain... Right? Uh, this is the part where, depending on whether you watch Monty Python or another version, you know, the 11th commandment's dropped. <laughs> Why? What does he see that's taking place? Of golden calf, right? And what does Moses do? He pitches a fit. That's, that's good. That's fair. 3,000 people worth of a fit. Remember that? He kills 3,000 people. Do me a favor. In Acts chapter 2, how many people are baptized? You think that's a coincidence? Do you think that the gospel writer didn't know the story? And here it is on that day of Pentecost when the Spirit descends and everyone hears the teaching, the preaching in their own language and 3,000 are baptized. What an amazing picture Boy, we should know our text, right? So, earlier we talked about the, the baptism of Jesus. And I said, what's the imagery? And the very first piece that I gave you was what? No, no, no. Good. Uh, yes. Not what I was thinking. If you could read my mind, this would be way easier. <laughs> I said, what is the imagery in that picture, in that moment when the Spirit descends, right? But what happens before it? The heavens are torn open. So this is how the book of Luke begins. The book of Luke ends with what? The curtain being torn open. Right? Now, again, me growing up, not having any context for this, I was taught that's so God can get out. 
Yes, the curtain was made of lead. He was unable to penetrate it. (laughs) He's been stuck in... I was going to say a bad word. In my church, that would have been okay. I don't know about yours. He was stuck in this darn cubicle, right? Office space. That's all I can picture. He's kicked... um, And... But listen to this. When we have stories in the Hebrew text and a child dies, what does the parent do? They tear their garments. Does any of you realize that the curtain in the temple was called the clothing of God? And Jesus dies and the temple curtain is torn God rents his clothing. He wasn't having any struggle getting out. He knew the back door, right? It was that his son just died and he rents his clothing. One last piece and I promise I'll wrap up. In the text, particularly the NIV, I don't know if the new updated NIV, NIV 2.0 or whatever it is, um, if they still do it. But I know that the, the NIV used to do it. In the section where it says, Jesus ate with the sinners and tax collectors, sinners is in quotes. Anybody know why? It wasn't, it wasn't like what we think oftentimes, like where the Pharisees didn't think they were sinners. Of course they believed they were sinners. But there were individuals who were sinners because their way of life was breaking Torah in and of itself. So like maybe someone's job was a tax collector where they collected a usury. And usury goes against Torah. And so for them to just function in culture, they were always breaking Torah. Or maybe a person was a prostitute where their very uh, thing that gave them a living and kept them alive and kept them functioning within a community was breaking Torah. It could even be someone who handles the dead and, and, and buries uh, the deceased. And these people were called sinners. And I love that the stories that we have of Jesus eating with them, he never once says, stop. Instead, he sits at table with them. The very essence of their presence was sinners. They broke Torah by just living. And Jesus sat with them. The only person he ever wagged his finger in those settings to were the uh, Pharisees that were wagging their fingers at him. You see, when I began reading the text intelligently, and I started to allow it to speak from a context and from a time and a place, the scriptures finally began to sing. You see, I thought I had to get myself into this uber-spiritual place to get the scriptures to sing. And I'd, be careful you don't mishear me here. I'm not saying that that can't cause the scriptures to sing. I'm not saying if, if you are a person that finds yourself more in tune with the mystics that you're being robbed. Though I would add, don't discount engaging the text in its context, and in its culture, and in its setting. Because when we actually treat the Bible like we would any other book, 
it becomes bigger and better than any other book. We shortchange the Bible by oversimplifying it. We shortchange the Bible by allowing someone else to be the answer person. Look, you have Google. You don't need an answer person, right? Google has figured that out for us. When I disciple folks in my church and they ask me a question that should just be Googled, I just say, discipler, not Google. Go Google it. If you have a question where we can wrestle with the text and figure out what is the next better question we can ask, let's do that. I've discovered now in my journey of studying scripture and teaching the text that if I engage a certain passage and I leave that engagement with that text with fewer questions than I arrived with, I've done it wrong. There's a saying, and I know I'm going to botch it. It says, the difference between philosophy and religion, maybe someone knows this one, is philosophy has questions Answers that are questions that can't be answered, and religion has answers that can't be questioned. Let me tell you something. That doesn't have to be true. If we can start to engage the text with wonder, engage the text in the beauty that exists within it, I think that the church will move away from being a place of behavior modification and into a place of transformation. I believe that deeply in the power of Scripture. John says that Jesus is the Torah made flesh. He is the very word that has become flesh. You know, uh, real quick, I apologize. I don't have no idea how I'm doing on time. And that is, I'm okay? All right, great. Good, I, what, 15, 30 more minutes? Um, <laughs> last, last piece. So you guys are a relatively music fond music folks. You're like, I'm smooth. I I know how to speak. Good. Um, So I wanted to share with you, I am like one of the biggest Bob Dylan fans that ever lived. Seriously, anything and everything about Bob Dylan, I have in here. It's a steel trap. And though you may argue with me, I believe with every ounce of my being, he is the greatest Beatle. Now, That joke is always funnier in my mind. I have no idea who Bob Dylan is. I I said, well, maybe he was a Rolling Stone. And my wife's like, oh. (laughs) My point is, we as Christians say, I am the biggest Jesus fan you will ever meet. But we don't have a stinking clue what he said. We We don't have a clue... John says, he is the very word of God incarnate. He has put flesh on the Torah. He's living in such a way that Torah emanates from him. And we have no idea what that means. I beg of you, I plead with you, that over this year, over the rest of your life, um, that's Bob Dylan calling to complain about that joke, isn't it? (laughs) Um, that you give yourself over to trying to sit in a place and with a posture that you get to hear the scriptures sing to you. It will change everything about you, everything about your life. May I pray over you? Lord, you are so good. I am so grateful 
that you continue to engage us, that you continue to pursue us. Lord, I pray that we in turn pursue you. Lord, I pray that your scriptures might, might make our bones feel like they are bursting. Lord, I pray that we can hear the song of your psalms, that we can hear you sing to us when we are depressed, that we can hear you sing to us when we feel deserted, we can hear you sing to us when we are in ecstasy and great joy. Lord, may we cherish your lullaby and may we hand it off and teach others to listen for it too. It's in your most precious, holy, and beautiful name I pray. Amen. Uh, thank you so much. Um, now you know why I was so excited to have him come here and be with us today. Um, I'm going to invite you to communion table in just a minute, but I wanted to let you know uh, that Don is going to con- continue to spend some time with us after the service today. Uh, one of the things that he didn't tell you about his church and I didn't tell you about his church is that, uh, is it about 40% of Don's church are individuals who identify as sexual minorities? They are LGBTQ people. And Don is engaging them with the gospel in a way that is incredible and powerful. And uh, as you know, this is something that we uh, care a great deal about and have begun to talk about together as a community. And Don has uh, offered to spend some time with us following the service talking about that and how that works at Dust Covenant Church. And um, it will be informal and casual, uh, but also very, I think, enlightening and, and powerful for us. So... Uh, If you'd like to stick around after the service today and spend some time talking together with Don and and with me and uh, with each other, I would invite you to stick around. I know that's kind of a last-minute thing, and maybe you have to go somewhere. We'll try to end it at such a time that you could still go and get lunch and not be super hungry um, with your Western bellies uh, and all that stuff. Excuse me. Um, So I just want to let you know that that's happening. I'll remind you about that in the announcements in in about 10 minutes when we finish our service. But uh, now let me invite you all to come and receive the grace offered in the table of the Lord. Um, This is uh, the great sacrament of sustenance that Christ extends to us, his very body and blood, uh, which were broken for us and shed for us. And um, I think I brought a paper up here. Hang on a second. I lost it. It's okay. I'll, I'll use it another time. It was a really beautiful meditation on the communion table by, uh, by John Calvin. And uh, anytime you hear me quoting John Calvin, you might want to check my head. Um, but it was a beautiful meditation on the communion table, and I'll read it to you another time. For now, let me just say, uh, come to this table. If you're seeking to follow Jesus in this place, Torah and fleshed, um, his flesh and blood are here. His body and blood are offered for you. You need not be a member of our church or any church. You simply must be um, intending to follow him and to serve him. And so we practice intinction. You can tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in either the wine or the juice and uh, receive it all at once right there in that moment. Um, We're going to continue to sing. If you'd like prayer with our prayer team, that will happen up here under the cross. And um, so respond to uh, hearing the word of God proclaimed, uh, however the spirit might be leading you. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.